brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this sad, anxious, and uncertain world, there is nothing more comforting to the child of God than that which we confess here in Lord's Day 10. And if you believe in Jesus and follow after him in spirit and in truth, this comfort is for you personally. The comforting truth that God the Father cares for you and that he directs all things in your life and in this world for your eternal well-being and for your good. We call this gospel truth the providence of God. And this afternoon, we're going to consider three things about this wonderful fatherly care that God exercises over the world for the sake of his glory and the well-being of you and I, his children. First, we're going to consider the wide embrace of his care. Secondly, the special focus of his care. And thirdly, the wonderful encouragement of his care. First of all, as awesome as this thought is, consider the wide embrace or extent of his care. And that care is awesome because it's so comprehensive and so wide embracing that it includes everything that God has made. For not only did God create everything, but he also upholds and rules everything by that same almighty power. So that as we confess, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. As Psalm 36 verse 6 says, O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. And as Psalm 104 verse 27 says, These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. God's care, however, doesn't just mean that he has a tender regard towards all that he has made. But otherwise, he stands by helplessly watching. No. But it means that he is infallibly leading and directing all things, both in heaven above and here on earth. To achieve a certain goal. Even the earth's climate. And the consequences of it. As he declared to Noah in Genesis 8 verse 22. It means he is governing all creatures. From the largest planet. Going around its sun to the smallest electron around its atomic nucleus, from the mightiest of angelic beings to the smallest bird, from the highest paid CEO of a large corporation to the teenager sweeping the floors at McDonald's, 
He rules them all to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his sovereign plan. And thus, as Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And as we also read in Proverbs 19, verse 21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but thankfully we could say it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. In fact, Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Now, how can God do this? Only because he is God. And only because he is not only almighty, but all-knowing as well. God knows where every worm is in the earth. He knows the trajectory and the temperature of every star. He knows the flight path of every insect and every airplane and jet in the sky. And he knows every thought in your heart and mine. As David says in Psalm 139, you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And that's why Proverbs 16 verse 2 says that everyone's motives are weighed by the Lord. Everything is known by God and everything is under his control. And thus, as Jesus says of even the little sparrows, that not even one of them falls to the ground or even hops apart from the will of your Father. For this reason, the child of God should be absolutely convinced that all things happen by God's decree and not by chance or because of any such thing as good or bad luck. We need to see God's hands behind all that happens in the world and all that happens to us as well. So that as Caspar Olivianus, the secondary author of the Heidelberg Catechism says, we should fasten the eyes of our heart directly upon God as the original source and cause of everything. How else could Joseph have said to his brothers who had cruelly sold him into slavery in Egypt that it was not you who sent me here, but God? So too, Job, when he had lost everything, not only his material possessions, but even his children, did not complain about the bad luck of those vicious Sabaeans who killed his servants and livestock, or about those terrible winds that took the lives of his sons and daughters, but said, the Lord has given. Yeah, we know that. But he goes on to say, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, does this mean then that God is the cause of sin and evil? which brings about these terrible disasters in the world? Not at all. 
It simply means that God is so almighty, so omniscient or all-knowing, and so wise that he is able to incorporate the actions of the wicked, even Satan himself, into his plan, even as we see with Job. So that these evil forces actually end up serving God's good and righteous cause. This is a great marvel of God's providence and the ground of unspeakable comfort for those who are his children. For yes, terrible things can and do happen to Christians. And those who do such things to God's children are guilty and liable before the awful judgment seat of Christ. But far from having to work around the sin and rebelliousness of man and the fallenness of the sin-cursed world, God our Father actually uses these evils to accomplish the eternal well-being and salvation of his people. Thus, as Joseph said to his guilty but repentant brothers, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. To put it quite simply, God is more than able with a very crooked stick to draw a very good and straight line. He is able to work good things and salvation itself through the actions of wicked people. And nowhere do we see this providence of God more clearly than in the giving up of his only begotten son in order to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. For God not only permitted and watched over all of this, but he actually brought it to pass in order to punish his son in our place as he promised he would through his Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah. Here in Isaiah 53, we read that God would lay on him, not just mere men, but God would lay on him, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all, that it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. But how did God bring this about? As Peter says to those who had a hand, an active hand in crucifying the Lord Jesus. As he says there in Acts 2 verse 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Here we read that those who conspired against Jesus had their own wicked motives for doing so. Of course, Judas wanted the 30 pieces of silver. The Pharisees and high priests wanted to recover their honor and authority in the eyes of the people, seriously threatened by Jesus' exposure of, our, of their hypocrisy. And Pilate just wanted peace in order to retain his favor 
with the Roman emperor. But God also had his reason. The forgiveness of our sins and our restoration to him as his children through faith in his son. Those who put Jesus to death were guilty of the most heinous crime in all history. Far worse than any atrocity committed by ISIS or by Adolf Hitler or anyone else. For it was the murder of no one less than God in our flesh, in our nature. God did not force them, contrary to their depraved minds and wills, to do so. They willingly murdered Jesus because of their own sin and unbelief. And yet, as Acts 4.28 says, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Such is the wide embrace of God's care over us and over all creation for his eternal purposes. His almighty rule over small and great, good and evil, health and sickness, by which he fulfills his sovereign will. As we've just seen, it's by his omnipotent power that he has accomplished our salvation in Jesus Christ. And because he has done this, we may know that for those who believe in Christ, God will work out all things for our ultimate good in our personal lives. And that brings us to our second point regarding God's providence. And that is the special focus of his care. God rules over all things, yes. But in all this, what is the purpose? And who are the special objects of his care? Well, that should be clear as we read the scriptures. The purpose of his providence is to exalt his glory. And the special people included in all this is each and every one of us who are his children as believers in Christ. All those who love the Lord and want to obey and follow him in their lives. They are the ones for whom the Father especially cares and for whom he is directing all things. In Matthew 10, Jesus speaks to his disciples and to all of us who will face trouble and persecution. That is, if we stand up and acknowledge Jesus as our Savior and Lord, as Christians do. But here he asks us in this context, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, he says to us 
You are worth more than many sparrows. In that day, as in ours, the sparrow was a common, drab, and insignificant little creature that hardly anyone would take notice of. Now, a cardinal, or maybe a palliated woodpecker, or even a blue jay, we might notice. But a sparrow? It has no beautiful feathers, nor can it even sing like a songbird. It's seemingly worthless. And yet God our Father, says Jesus, watches over them. So don't be afraid, Jesus says, for you are worth more than many sparrows. And if God cares for them, this is the point, how much more, so says Jesus, does he and will he care for you? He whom Jesus calls your father and you his precious sons and daughters for whom he gave up no one less than his own son to die for. The truth is God the father loves his people with an everlasting love. And if Jesus himself hadn't said it, I wouldn't dare to say this. Even as he loves his only begotten son, as Jesus himself says of his people in John 17, verse 23. In Christ, we are infinitely more valuable than mere birds in his sight. We are his beloved children whom he promises to lead, uphold, and provide for all through our lives by his fatherly hand as our heavenly father he promises to care for to guide and control all things for our benefit and eternal well-being all things you might be thinking yes or as the apostle says in the previously mentioned Romans 8:28 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That purpose of salvation. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you've been called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that we can always see this, at least at first, that somehow whatever's happening to me is for my ultimate good. Thus, because of our frailty and our short-sightedness, we may find ourselves asking, why this illness? For what purpose this, quote, accident? Why this trouble? Why this terrible grief? Questions which Joseph and Job surely asked at some point, as well. No, we may not always be able to see how such things coming upon us and into our lives can be for our good. But knowledge of God's providence means we can see that somehow it is for our eternal good. 
And that in it all, God has a saving purpose and a loving purpose for us. A loving purpose that nothing in all creation can ever frustrate or prevent. And that's, if you look at the context of Romans 8.28, is to conform us to the image of Christ himself. As God prepares us for glory. As a certain poem entitled, It Matters to Me About You, puts it, My child, I know thy sorrows, thine every grief I share. I know how you are tested, and what is more I care. Think not I am indifferent to what afflicteth thee. Thy weal and woe are matters of deep concern to me. But child, I have a purpose in all that I allow. I ask thee then to trust me, though all seems dark just now. How often thou hast asked me to purge away thy dross. But this refining process involves for thee a cross. There is no other pathway if thou wouldst really be conformed unto the image of him who died for thee. Thou canst not be like Jesus till self is crucified. And as a daily process, the cross must be applied. Just as the skillful gardener applies the pruning knife, in so I too would sever the worthless from thy life. I have but one sole object, that thou shouldst fruitful be. And is it not thy longing that I much fruit should see? Then shrink not from the training I needs must give to thee. I know just how to make thee what I would have thee be. Remember that I love thee, Think not I am unkind when trials come to prove thee and joy seems left behind. Tis but a little longer until I come again. What now seems so mysterious will all be then made plain. Take courage then and fear not. Press forward to the prize. A crown of life awaits thee. Glory before thee lies. Yes, indeed, for solid comfort on earth and the certain joy of heaven, that's what God's providence means for the believer in Jesus Christ. And now, thirdly, having considered the wide embrace of God's care and the special focus of His care, we come to the great encouragement of his care. And what an encouragement to the Christian the knowledge of God's providence really is. For it means, first of all, that we can be patient when things go against us. And why? Because when we look behind and beyond our temporary trials to the hand of our Father in heaven, we see that ultimately nothing can really be against us, but that everything in some way or another must be for us and according to the loving purpose and plan of God for our lives. It's for this reason that Hebrews 12 verse 7, speaking of those who were persecuted and even, even lost all their possessions for the cause of Christ, says, endure hardship as discipline 
For God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Think of it. Unlike unbelievers whose difficulties and trials are meaningless. What I mean by this is that whatever they suffer, they cannot know, as the Christian knows, because it's not true for them, that it is for their ultimate good. Contrary to them, the child of God knows that what is happening to him or her is not pointless, but is actually accomplishing something infinitely and eternally good in their lives. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, man who knew hardships, knew the inside of a dungeon and prison, could say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and monetary troubles, as he calls them, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Ask yourself this question. Why does the athlete happily endure the grueling practices, including getting up very early in the morning, and the discipline, even of what they eat? Why do they endure all that involved in their sport? Or how can a gardener or a farmer happily persist in the planting, the weeding, the watering, the getting hot, dirty, and tired, and the stress of it all, in the hot summer sun, and go on and on and do this, even after maybe a season or two of not seeing much results? Why? Because they both, whether you're talking about this athlete or the farmer, they both know what it's really all about. It's about winning the prize. And it's about gaining and bringing in a fantastic harvest. So Hebrews 12 says, no discipline. That's what this hardship is. Seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Yes, we can be patient, as Joseph was patient, even while suffering in prison, as Job was patient in his affliction, and as David was patient when persecuted by Saul, because they knew that God is almighty, that God is faithful, that God will provide. Secondly, it's because of God's providence that we can be thankful when things go well. Why? Because we know that whatever blessing or prosperity comes our way, whether work, whether our future spouse, 
our children, our homes, and all that God so generously gives to us comes not by chance, but from our Father's hand. For every good and perfect gift, says James 1.17, is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And it's this Father who wants to bless us even more richly than we ourselves wish to be blessed. Thus again, God's providence is a great encouragement to be thankful in the most biblical sense of the word. That we may glorify Him. For do you really, really want to be blessed? Blessed to the max? To be filled with a joy that nothing on earth can ever give you? Well, then, as Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Finally, it's because of God's providence that in regards to the future, we can have good confidence in Him who is our Father that nothing will ever separate us from His love. What peace of mind is ours? What freedom from worry when you embrace this? Because we know, as David says of God in Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. Because we know and can say, as Paul could say in 2 Timothy 4.18, even awaiting his probable execution, that the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And what an encouragement to take hold of and realize in our lives all the wonderful opportunities and blessings that God by his providence holds out to us. These opportunities that come to us, again, not by chance, but by his appointment. The picture here, for some of you people who have played volleyball or have seen it played, it's like one who sets up the ball in volleyball for the teammate to come along and spike it down for a certain point, which usually is not returned, but mostly is successful. Well, you need to understand then that God also sets up opportunities in our lives to be especially blessed to us and to be a blessing to him, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to others. As we see in scripture, as we see in history and in our own lives, God sets up opportunities to serve him in special ways, opportunities to witness of him and of our salvation to others. Opportunities to be blessed even beyond what we can imagine if our eyes are open to it and we are ready to respond. 
to our Heavenly Father at work in our lives. So seek God's will in your relationship to others, young people. Seek his will in regards to your future, your work, and in all you do. For God's providence, just like election, isn't intended to remove all incentive in our lives, but actually provides the very foundation for it, for our our responsibility and our incentive to really go and take hold of life. Or as Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Oh, what a wonderful father we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The most wonderful father there could ever be. Let us trust then more and more each and every day in him whose love for us in Christ we could never, ever measure. For yes, his eye is on the sparrow, even the little sparrow. But even more, he cares for you and me. Amen.